out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the guitarist musician, Neil Clark, um, who's worked with such people as Lloyd Cole and The Commotions, and also with Chris Thompson and The Bathers, and many, many more. This is the interview. Um, So look, after several minutes of casual chat, mostly talking about the UEA, University of East Anglia, the fact that they played there in 1984, I do believe, Um, we then went into the conversation of um, a musical combo that uh, Neil was in with Chris Thompson of The Bathers, who I did an interview with very recently, and he was in a band called Friends Again. Um, It all makes sense. Anyway, we were talking about uh, The Bathers, and Chris Thompson, and this was Neil's response. Neil, it's over to you. And would that be Chris Thompson by chance? It was Chris Thompson. That's right, actually. Well, I was, did Chris tell you about the band that, that we formed? That Stephen and Stephen, the drummer in the Commotions, and I formed with him after the Commotions. It's mm. called Bloomsday. Did he talk about that at all? No. No. Um, so when the Commotions split up. Um, Stephen and I had an idea that we'd always loved Friends Again and Chris had brought out his first solo album I think about a year prior to this maybe 88 it's got an amazing title it's called Unusual Places to Die (laughs) and uh, we loved it Um, you know I, I didn't really know Chris that well at the time but we loved his voice and we loved his writing so we asked him if he was up for this and he said yes and uh, we formed a band called Bloomsday that should have been quite good actually but we got signed to Ireland um, quite quickly possibly a little bit too quickly actually before we'd really had a chance to to develop our work properly you know yeah. Uh, and then I, we were really enthused about signing to Ireland because of the lineage of Ireland as a, as a label, you know, with the reputation of developing acts and giving them a chance, um, um, maybe over a, over the, the, the course of one, two, maybe even three albums. Um, but that didn't actually turn out to be the case because Ireland got bought by Universal. I think maybe six or seven months into the time that we were with them. And they had a massive clear out and we were part of that, I think, after. We only got 14 months with them. We did put an album out called Bloomsday Fortuny and uh, Chris is a singer. I think he cut a deal with Ireland to put out his second solo album. Right. With us. Uh, is it Sweet Deceit? I think it was Sweet Deceit. Um um, so that kind of worked out quite well for him and I think he went back to go this Saturday I'm not entirely sure um, but that, that's the story though Yeah, I think he started on Go Dis, then there was Ireland, and then there's this German label called Marina Records. That's right, yeah, Marina. And I think now he's on another little label. But actually, when I did that one, The Friends Again, I also, there was some, there was Chris, and also there was the other member of the band called Paul as well. So it was a bit of a three-way conversation, and... um, Paul went on to form Love and Money, so um, yes, we, we 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 went into detail on certain things, but obviously there's a, a limit you can have so, so much detail on things. So uh, 
Yeah, right. we probably um, yeah from from sort of the the band you know Friends Again, it probably we just went into the other two two bits of the narrative. We could have been there all night actually. I didn't realise they had such a sort of uh, a history of things that we're doing, and I think you know they're still doing work now, which is quite amazing. So uh, it's all interesting stuff. Yeah, but um, yeah, so it's all good. So look, I mean now, sort of interestingly, well, it's not that interesting, but. Um, I'm now sort of mid-50s, you know, I was born in 64. You know, my early musical moment in life was the kind of early 70s glam rock period. What was what was the kind of formative years of your your sort of journey? How did how did it all start to develop with you? Um, well, I, I was born in 58. So my probably my first musical memory was was getting a copy of She Loves You. Under the Christmas tree, which would have been 1963, and I would have been five, um, and quite liking it. But it really kind of it really clicked for me when a friend of the family took me. It, it must have been 18 months later to see a hard day's night. Uh, I grew up in a town called East Kilbride, right, um, just south of Glasgow. I see Aztec camera from there. Jesus and Mary Chain. Um, but I was taken through to Hamilton, which had the nearest cinema, to see a hard day's night, and I just loved it. It was, you know, I loved everything about it. I loved the, the music, obviously, the electric guitars, the camaraderie. It was fantastic. So that that really that really had an impact on me. When I was thinking about this, it seemed that the Beatles... Um, they played such a huge role in my childhood. Um, I can almost like pinpoint certain, certain anchor points. I just remember that that seemed to have the Beatles at their, at their core. I remember I remember um, standing in the kitchen with my mum and um, Hey Jude coming on and just the play out going on forever, but it was just sublime. Even at that age, I thought, wow, this is incredible. And my mum said, that, that's the new Beatles single. What do you think? It was just, it was incredible. Mm. Um, so I think it was mostly at, at that time, you know, through the 60s, it's kind of strange to be, it seems so long ago, but but in some ways not. Yes. Um, um, I don't know if you feel the same, but yeah, <laughs> I mean, so many of the points were in my Primary school years were, were punctuated by the Beatles, you know. Yes. Johnny Yoko's bed and and the activism that really actually had an effect on me at the time. Um, prior to that, I guess Sergeant Pepper, Mystery Tour, and all the psychedelia. And then I remember Let It Be, and I remember you know the single Let It Be just being it was like top of the charts on top of the pops. Was top of the pops around in 68, 69? It must have been because yes. or something anyway. I just remember the sadness I felt every time Let It Be, the video, because they didn't, you know, they'd split up by that time and it was only the, the film of the actual song or Get Back, I guess, but Let It Be, I loved as a song. So that, that was a very sad thing. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's interesting because I, I suppose one of my first musical memories, because it was, you know, as I said, I was born in 64. So I spent a lot of time, you know, as you do at home, you know, being brought up in a, a village 
you know, working class family, you know, being in the kitchen with my mum and the washing machine, it was one of those twin tub washing machines where you'd, you know, there was a lot of performance going on and lots of kind of hot water bubbling away and pipes going from the from the taps to this, you know, the machine that would sort of bounce around in the middle of the kitchen. You know, it was kind of there was a lot of domestic work that um, housewives used to have to do. And I can remember listening to she'd have the radio two on and there would be Jimmy Young in the afternoon and he'd do this thing called What's the Recipe Today, Jimmy? And my mum would always be scribbling these recipes down on bits of paper and then putting them in the drawer and never probably looking at them again. But then I also remember there was a sort of a programme which was it was called Scylla with Scylla Black. And there was a fantastic, the song that they had was Step Inside Love. And I absolutely loved the drama and excitement of it. And then decades later, literally decades, I realised it was uh, written by Paul McCartney and John Lennon, wasn't it? The Beatles. And I thought it all, it kind of all makes sense because you thought that's such a classy song. Obviously, Scylla did, you know, all those Burt Backrack numbers as well. But I do remember the, the thrill of that moment where it kind of kicks kicks off almost like you know listen to teen spirit really decades later really it's a sort of change of keys yeah. in there so it's it's interesting and then in the 70s my my brother brought home you know sergeant pepper and i remember being mesmerized by that album and especially there was a song called good morning on side two which i thought was just sublime you know and uh, and yeah. it's interesting because it was probably about 73 74 and the beatles have felt such a thing from the past and then i you know looking back at that thinking They'd only broken up about three years before that, but it seemed like another era, didn't it? You know, that that change of music and scene is quite interesting. Well, I think the 60s were just really fascinating. I mean, I wasn't old enough to really be cognizant, I guess, of all the politics and the, the social breakthrough at the time, but it was, it was really fantastic, you know? It's quite, there's not been anything quite like since, I don't think... I mean, I was we were talking about the uh, the Scylla, the Scylla program and the Scylla song. I remember, was it Lulu that did the version of To Serve With Love? Yes. Well, I thought that was fantastic. There were so many Bacharach songs, as you said, from that time as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Really, it's really interesting. Well, then we also probably started hearing, you know, as I said, my mum would have radio tour and you'd have the Carpenters and stuff like that. And again, those lyrics from the Carpenters, it's like, they were amazing. I can see, you know, uh, as I often say to myself, probably in The Cat, that if you like The Carpenters, you'd definitely like Joy Division and The Smiths because those songs were so sad. And when you're about eight or nine singing along to them or even younger, you, can't, you don't quite realise what you're singing. But, you know, when you say goodbye to love, you know, I, no one seems to care if I should live or die anymore. You know, they, they're on radio too, but you're thinking, God, Ian Curtis, you know. Yeah, <laughs> It's funny, I was listening, do you know the song Karen by Sonic Youth? Yes. Yeah, I listened to that a couple of days ago. Like I was watching something on Criterion um, during COVID time. I've, Criterion's been, the, the Criterion collection is on, it's on, it streams in North America. I don't think it actually does in, in Europe or the UK yet, but it's been fantastic. And I was watching something uh, it was a Goddard film um, with Anna Karina. They just had five songs in it, and they were all perfect. One of them was Karen by Sonic Youth. Um, Ali Fakatari was another one. And it, was, it was just fantastic. Anyway, I don't want to digress too much. Yes. Well, it was interesting. I mean, digressing slightly, but there's a film out at the moment with um, John McEnroe, 
and it's filmed and it's only just got this kind of amazing soundtrack with um, Sonic Youth in which I because I think one of the members of the band recently realised or sort of someone highlighted it to them and, and it's kind of all this kind of real close-up of John McEnroe playing with this kind of really sort of, you know, the noise of Sonic Youth, kind of lo-fi noise, but it, it kind of works perfectly and obviously you kind of, I mean, I've completely spoiled it and don't do it justice, but when you hear it and see this, the image of John McEnroe and Sonic Youth music, it bizarrely works. So, um, yes, it was one of the guitarists who posted it on his Facebook page or some page. Uh-huh. So it's worth checking out. But look... So diverse. So as the seventies progressed, it was kind of interesting how quickly the door of one decade finishes and then the other one kind of creeps open. How did you then navigate during the next period? Because obviously this is when you're you're probably starting to sort of develop a lot more at this stage. Well, in um, I think it was seventy or seventy one. Um, my dad went as a mature student to art school, the Glasgow School of Art. And I think the way the, the way I remember it or was told that the Hannibal Austin government brought in uh, an initiative called the Special Recruitment Scheme or something like that in the late 60s because of the death of high school teachers or just teachers in general. And it gave mature students that perhaps had families uh, a slightly higher grant um, to go get a higher education with the provision that they became teachers at the end of it for a designated period of time, maybe five years, something like that. After that, they could do what they want. My dad had always wanted to go to art school, but as a working class boy um, from the East End of Glasgow, his father was a steel worker, um, that wasn't possible. They, for them, I, I think a step up was for him to get a trade. He became a painter and decorator. When uh, that was still a skilled trade, you learn all the thing, you know, gold leafing, imitation marbling, all that sort of stuff. But he ended up just working in the yards in Glasgow, red leading the hulls of, of, of Clyde built ships and painting houses. So when this opportunity came along, he went for it. He had three kids. Him and my mum had three kids. My mum went to teach a training college, actually. So they both, um, for this period, I think from 71 to 75. Blimey. Uh, they, were both, they were both students. Now, my dad was a student at art school. So he would, he would maybe, I, I remember a few instances where he would bring a cohort of hippie sort of students back to the house in school bride. <laughs> and have a little bit of a party and, and there would always be somebody with a guitar, some hippie with a guitar. <laughs> and I would sit on the stairs and listen to them. And, uh, you know, that, I think, in conjunction with the Beatles obsession, got me, I, I, I said to them, I, I need to get a guitar. And um, eventually, after a lot of arm twisting, they, they bought me a it possibly might have been from this guy that came in the house, a, a beat-up old classical, which I promptly put steel strings on. Right. I don't know if, if you're a guitar player, but you put steel strings on a nylon-strung guitar, the neck's going to last a, like a month, maybe, before it begins to warp and bend, because it can't take the tension. So, but I loved it. I loved the feeling of the vibrations against my body. I couldn't even tune it, I couldn't play it, but it felt amazing. 
So my next task was to try and get them to buy me a steel strong dreadnought, you know, folk guitar. Mm. Which I managed to get them to do. And um, I persevered with that. Um, well, persevered is probably the wrong, the wrong word. I, I annoyed them, annoyed the hell out of them for about six months because I was just determined just to be kind of free form about <laughs> and, and make noise. And it was driving them nuts. So eventually they said, you have to go for lessons. And I was very resistant to this because reading the melody maker, it seemed like all my guitar heroes at that time had been self-taught. And I thought, well, you know, why can I not teach myself? But they insisted, and a friend of the family knew a, guitar, a young guy who was a guitar teacher across the other side of town. And um, they basically press gang me into it. They said, you've you got to do this. If you want to keep on going, you have to learn how to tune it, and you have to learn how to play it. So I reluctantly signed up for a month of lessons with this guy. Dave Finley was his name. Mm-hmm. I remember trudging up to his house in, in the west of Scotland driving rain some evening, thinking, ah, fuck, I don't want to do this. This is like, why are they making me do this? Um, and I get, he, he lived in a high rise, and I get off the lift, and I, you know, knock on his door, or ring his, ring his doorbell. He opens the door, and he takes me out of his little studio area. And I see an orange combo. That's, do you know, it's an orange amp combo. Mm-hmm. And I give it three, three, five when I stand in the corner and all this music. And, that, and I'm like, this is going to be okay. <laughs> yes. so I said, okay, what do you want to learn? And I said, well, I want to learn how to be a blues player. And I said, well, I can't really teach you the blues. You know, that's, that's something that... You'll, you'll come by that if you really want to, but, but um, you know, I'm, I'm, I teach music. And I guess I have a, a, a bias towards jazz. He said, but don't worry about that because blues is the root of jazz. So, you know, we'll go through that and we'll get to some point. Well, okay, that sounds good. And he had another question for me. He said, have you seen anything that, have you heard anything recently that, that you'd like to learn? I said, well, um, I think I was watching Top of the Pops that night. I said, um, so I, I, I said, well, I was, I, I'd watched Top of the Pops and I saw Thin Lizzy play Whiskey in the Jar. And he picked up this be up old classical that he had. He used as a teaching guitar. And he just played, he instantly just played the intro to Eric Bell's intro to Whiskey in the Jar. And that was it for me. So I was like, this guy's amazing. This guy's amazing. <laughs> so I stayed with Dave for three years. Uh, he taught me. He taught me to read chord charts. He taught me about harmony, and he taught me. I would say, how how do I play a C major nine? And he would say, Well, we've done all that. Like you tell me. He said, I've shown you some shapes, but what he really tried to do was teach you how to build chords yourself and understand how um, things came into being harmonically, which was a really really genius approach, actually. Yes, and this and was and this was all during the sort of the mid. This was more mid seventies, I guess. Um, no, I think this would have been seventy one, seventy two. Right. Yeah. So this, quite is, early. Yeah. this is very early. Najar, I think was that. It must have been. That's that's my recollection. Anyway, yes. I certainly went to Dave. 72, I think, at the latest. Yeah, I was 13. Um, and I stayed with him for two and a half, three years. You know. 
I guess, um, yeah. And were you, at that stage, were you sort of picking up on sort of the musical, you know, like changes that were happening during the 70s with sort of glam rock and then sort of a bit of heavy metal and then prog rock? Um, yes. Um, my friends were all listening to Electric Warrior at the time and I could appreciate this was a really interesting sound. It was great. Um, Alice Cooper, which I see looking back on, but that band was fantastic. What an incredible rock band. Um, but yeah, I was, I was, I was becoming infected by prog rockers. <laughs> and, um, I, I started going on a lot of concerts. The first concert I went to was in Glasgow Green's Playhouse. Um, everybody in the West of Scotland knows Glasgow Apollo and what it was called before that, the Great Green's Playhouse. And man, that was just fantastic. I went to my first concert at 13. Um, it was John Mayle, um, supported by a prog band, a really great prog band actually called Matching Mole, who had Robert Wyatt playing drums. Um, this was just before his accident. Yes. A fantastic drummer. I love Robert Wyatt's work these days and subsequent to that as well, it's just incredible. But um, yeah, that, that was that was a really interesting first show. Yes. So it was just a couple of months later, I saw Slade with uh, Status Quo supporting them. Blimey, that was very. Just before Status Quo, but Slade were fantastic. They also they were a great rock band. Yeah. After that, I just went down. You know, was whatever was coming on, like what's coming to the Playhouse. Let's go and see. Um, the first big prog band that I saw was Yes, and I saw the Fragile Tour, not at Playhouse, at Glasgow Kelvin Hall, um, which was just fantastic, actually. It was great. I think I, I think I saw Yes a couple of times after that. I definitely saw the Topographic Oceans Tour, um, and I saw so many other prog acts. Um, King Crimson, the Larks, Tongues, and Aspic Tour with... Uh, Jamie Muir, percussionist, and, and Bill Burford, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yes, because most, yeah. most people always go, oh, yes, we saw Roxy Music, and then we saw David Bowie, and so those are the, norm, the bands that most people mention when they talk about sort of um, that period in Scotland. I guess there must have been quite a lot of a tour around that, that stage. Well, I, I mean, I, I loved Bowie and, and Roxy, and I mean, I remember when the first Roxy album came out, and Peel was playing it for months beforehand. So, when people started buying it, I remember going into school and everybody had a copy of, of the first Roxy music album. I was like, ah, I already had that like six months ago. But it was fantastic. <laughs> I did love it. Yeah. Yes, isn't it? It was kind of well. I suppose it was interesting because was fragile. Was that the album which had heart of the sun, heart of the sunrise on at the 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 ten minute track at the end. It, it may well have been. Um, yeah, yeah. I just... Uh, Roundabout, Roundabout was definitely on Fragile. Heart of the Sunrise, I'm not too sure. Yeah. Um, my, close to the edge. Thanks. Uh, yeah. Because my brother, who was seven years older than me, he was really into prog rock, so 
so I've I've got a bit of an appreciation or well, love of prog rock because during that period I would sneak into his room and play these records that he'd said whatever you do don't come into my room and play those records so obviously when you're very young you sort of sneak in and was yeah. kind of mesmerised both by the albums sleeves and artwork obviously Roger Dean but then there was that kind of period of uh, of gen. I did see Greenslade as well, by the way. I'm talking about Roger Dean. Oh, classic, yeah. yeah. Um, but but yeah, so so close to the edge and uh, re- relayer and topographic oceans and fragile were fantastic. And then there's a few Genesis albums, but then there was also um, Wishbone Ash and Barkley James Harvest as well crept in. But bizarrely, the solo work of Rick Wakeman is is something that I have embedded in my brain, which I used to play constantly as about a ten or eleven year old, which I thought was fantastic. King Arthur and the and uh, yeah, King Arthur, Henry VIII, and I remember it well. <laughs> yes, it's it's but good. I, I think the prog rock band that probably that I couldn't really understand at the time, um, if you could even call them prog rock, but that I now think were quite fantastic was Soft Machine with Robert Wyatt. Yeah, you you don't know Soft Machine? Is that Robert Wyatt? And Kevin Ayers. Yeah, they were part of the Canterbury scene. I think they were the major, well, with Pink Floyd, probably the major part. Um, Mike Ratledge. Um, yeah, Robert Wyatt did play. Yeah, he did. He drummed in the first edition of Soft Machine. I think they called their album Soft Machine 1, 2, 3, 4, I think. Uh, so I think Robert Wyatt was there up until 4. Anyway, I did love them. I do love them now. Maybe at the time it was a little, yeah. Yes. Well, I'm, yeah, it's kind of interesting that there's been sort of PhDs written about the Canterbury scene recently, which everyone's kind of into. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I went to see, um, is it Camel recent? Not Camel. Um, who's the other one who were? Uh, Caravan. Caravan. That's the ones. Yeah. They were at the Norwich Arts Centre recently, which were, um, yeah, they were okay. He, I did an interview with the main guy and he really hated punk rock. I remember him being quite bitter when, when he was talking about punk. <laughs> We're going to get to this point, I think, in a few minutes. Yeah. 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 So, yes. So then, you know, because cause you were at the ideal age when punk appeared, weren't you? I think it was, actually. Um, I just have to mention one other band. Um, so when I began to hear other things other than Prague and Glam Rocket, I heard Reeling in the Years by Steely Dan. Yeah. This really famous, it's famous now, Elliot Randall's guitar solo opening. I, mean, I remember standing up in our bedroom just being stuck, going, what is this? It's just incredible. That, that was a pivotal moment for me um, because I was beginning to be able to play a little bit better by that point. And I remember working out that solo. I'm just going, man, this is incredible. I believe it's Jimmy Page's favourite all-time recorded guitar solo. Um, so I went through a massive Steely Dan phase. You'd never see them because they stopped touring um, by Pretologic time. Um, but to this day, I, um, I, I love Steely Dan. The first six albums, uh, Gaucho, Left, left that I, I, I can't Gaucho leaves me cold but right up to Asia I can even name them can't buy a thrill um, what about Katie Lied that's the logic but Katie Lied yeah 
Classic, yeah. So were you, because from your parents' descri- your, your description of your parents, did Randy California and spirit come into your consciousness at all? Sorry, could you... <laughs> I, I was saying, because of your parents and their sort of um, art, being at art school, was um, spirit in the work of Randy California, you know, with that album 12 Dreams of Dr. Sodonagus, was, was, did that come into your kind of um, orbit at all? It, it didn't, actually, not... No, I mean, I, I know the work, um, but at the time, no, no. Uh, there was a guy across the road. I lived in a little uh, a cul-de-sac of a street, musical bride, um, just a few families. And one of my pals in the street um, had, a, had a, an older brother who had the most amazing record collection. So whenever Martin was out, um, we'd sneak up in his room and look through all his hundreds and hundreds of albums. So I would have seen all that stuff then. Um, I mean, I remember some of these covers. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, Weasel's Rip My Flesh, uh, Santana Abraxas, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Nice so, one. So then, obviously, being a serious music, musician at this stage and having guitar lessons with a person, how did then, when you heard the Ramones and the Damned and then, obviously, the Sex Pistols, what did that sort of do to your sort of musical consciousness? Well, I think, um, again, I do remember the first time I heard God Save the Queen. I'd read all the reports about them in, in Melbourne, America, and I thought, oh, this is... I don't know about this, but I, I was in school Pride Town Centre, and I think I think it was Tony Blackburn. You know how the Radio One DJs used to go out and do broadcasts from towns around about the UK, and I think it was Tony Blackburn, and he, he was playing "God Save the Queen" full volume outside in the you know the forum area of uh, school Pride, and I thought well, this is incredible, but it just sounds like won't get fooled again <laughs> to me. You know? I was like, this is just Townsend. Or Chris Spedding. And I, then I, I bought into this idea that Chris Spedding must have played all the parts in that because it just sounded so, so monumental. But of course it's not. Um, yeah, that, 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 that had a big effect on me. But the band that, that had the biggest effect, well, I was watching some BBC tour live concert and it was XTC during white, white music time. Right. Um, and I think I turned on when they were playing This Is Pop right at the beginning. And I just thought it was amazing. That XTC were my interface into post-punk. Um, because when I heard Andy Partridge playing these McCoy Tinery, distorted chords, quarto harmony, which is what he's doing, I was like, this is just this is fucking amazing. I love this, you know. It's like, this is it. This is actually really, really great. Um, it's timely. And it's necessary. Um, so that XTC White Music, and to a less extent, go to the follow-up. They were my um, interface into to post-punk and new wave. Yes, absolutely. And, and McGill, who was from the Glasgow area, um, I mean, shot by both sides and sung from under the floorboards, just. Incredible guitarist. Yes, because as the 80s progressed, well, no, before they progressed, we had 79, was Thatcher got in to, you know, to power and then sort of seemed to be there ever since, well, 97. Yeah. And then, you know, then that early period of the 90, 80s was kind of grim for a lot of people. So unemployment was quite the thing, wasn't it? And so we had all those kind of schemes and um, like, you know, government, uh, the Enterprise Alliance scheme and, 
and such like. So a lot of the bands that I've interviewed from the 80s, you know, had that year or so sort of unemployed. And sort of, I, and I can remember that feeling that, you know, it might not work out, so you might just be unemployed for a very long time. So that, that sort of encouraged a lot of kind of bands to, well, a lot of people to sort of, A, be unemployed, not really worry about the stigma of it. And then, you know, obviously, as as the cliche is with the 80s, you know, get, you know, getting a single John Peel playing it and then the John Peel session, which gives people that little bit of a kind of incentive to keep going to the next month or the next stage. So how did the 80s develop for you you as a sort of musician, as a person? Well, I, I started going to Glasgow School of Art. Um, same course, same tours as my dad, actually, ironically, two or three years previously, I was in a drawing painting department. And I lived at home for the first two years. Um, and then I moved into a flat when I was 19 with uh, four other art students. And we, and, you know, we just had a fantastic time. This would have been 79, yes? Yes. Uh, 79, I guess. Um, we just, you know, we had a we had a great time. We smoked a lot of spliff. We listened to Steel Pulse, Handsworth Revolution, um, Talking Heads, '77. More songs about buildings and food. XTC. Um, well, uh, yeah, the only ones. It was fantastic, really. You know. Yes, because we by then you we'd had the post punk period, which was exciting, but then. Things had started changing. There was like, you know, Simple Minds, it was U2, Julian Cope Band. And then there were those, I suppose, 83 was quite a moment, wasn't it? Oh, there's been Orange orange Juice. Because then, so 83, the Smiths come along and, and sort of, it's a bit of a game changer, really, from, you know, the, the world of independent music. So did that, you know, because you'd sort of, you formed the, your first band in the early 80s as well, hadn't you? Well... Um, yeah, actually, I should mention is when, when you were talking about about social conditions at that time and being on a doll. Um, it was a, when, when I graduated from art school, um, I immediately looked for bands to play with, and I, I answered an ad. I mean, in the, in the Glasgow Evening Times, and I met Alan. So I met Alan McGee. Oh, Alan McGee! God, this is great. So Alan and I were in a band um i think andy ennis was in the band but he was definitely in the next one because alan and i decided maybe we were maybe this wasn't the right unit for us we got on really well and we decided to to leave and form our own band with andy ennis with andy and, and a couple of guys and we the band was called newspeak so I remember I've read some. It's kind of ironic, really, but I've read I read I've read so many interviews with Alan over the years. Um, we're not in touch anymore. I haven't seen him for maybe fifteen years. Last time I saw him was here in Toronto when he was DJing. But one of the interviews, he, he because he, because remember Tony Blair tried to get him involved at the time um, uh, with mixed results. Mm. Uh, he's Alan's. I think he's totally right here. He always contended that it was being on the ball and having that resource um, that really was such a big help for a lot of bands. And I think that's true. For all of us, we needed to, you need time to develop. Yes. To rehearse. You need, you know, you just need this. To do music, to do art properly, you have to do it full time. 
and um, it paid off. I would say. It yeah. Well, it, well, I, I suppose. I mean, uh, so I'm resist. I try not to look back at the past with rose-tinted sunglasses and, and remind myself that it was really quite grim in the 80s. Though at the, actually at the current stage, stage or the current political climate, it's not looking that much better, really. But, but I realised that, um, you know, we had those kind of gatekeepers, you know, the music press, which were sort of a huge circulations, the three of them, you know, Sounds Melody Baker, the NME. There was also John Peel with this kind of, like, ability to play, you know, the platform to play all this new music. So he was a great gatekeeper and then you know you had every city in town had a, a sort of a venue night you know probably on a Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday you know when when it was kind of a bit dead so you know people would be happy to put on that kind of indie night or yeah whatever it was in the 80s Nor Norwich was called the wild club um with an e so you know you you know people were, had the chance to go and play live in front of a in a crowd of people which weren't their friends and family and anybody else they could emotionally blackmail to go and see them so it kind of gave everyone that a bit of apprenticeship to sort of see a if they like it and b you know because obviously it's quite hard work really isn't it when you when you realize what what's involved with being in a band and touring so but it does kind of gets you out you know and you mentioned Anna McGee I mean he started his kind of musical moment with various bands and then a fanzine and then doing that sort of venue in London, the living room, yeah. and then sort of the the record label with such people as the Jasmine Minx and then, you know, Momus as, as well, and, and quite a lot of eclectic people. So it was kind of, it was kind of extraordinary. And there was all these kind of little indie bands and some made it. And bizarrely doing this show, I just, I've not, I'm just boggled how many bands there have been actually. And everyone at least did one album or five EPs, you know, which someone's put together a compilation and said, okay, we'll just put your work together. But actually looking back at it, you know, and a lot of it I didn't hear at the time because it was quite hard to hear music is brilliant. You know, it's absolutely fantastic. So it's quite, it's quite interesting really, the creativity of that period. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I know. Uh -huh. So what, so after the, your Alan McGee experience, which is always very exciting. Sorry, I didn't quite I said that. after your Alan McGee, you know, moment and yes. and, and obviously, yeah. you know, you both stayed with music more than just stayed, really. You had a shape, had a huge kind of impact on the on the music scene. What was the next uh, phase in your life? Uh, well, I actually, I, I moved to Edinburgh um, in 1980, I think, for a couple of years. And um, that was just a bit of a hiatus. And I, I played I played quite a bit in Edinburgh, um, but I saw some great shows. I remember seeing the Associates very early on, um, who were absolutely fantastic. Um, so it was an interesting time. Um, I came back to Glasgow uh, at the end of 82, I think, and... I, I had a, f a friend that I'd grown up with in East Kilbride um, called Douglas Muirden. And Douglas owned a Porter studio. <laughs> he had a ta Tascam 4-track. And I remember going around to his flat one night and he played me some demos that a pal of his had recorded just three songs. I, I was just blown away. I was like, these, these are incredible. These, these are some of the best things I've ever heard. Um, and it was Lloyd. Um, so he said, yeah, you know, he's looking for a bass player and a guitar player. I should hook you guys up. And that's how that came about. Yes. 
Amazing. Mm-hmm. The perfect, the perfect kind of meeting, really. So when you, because it didn't take long before the, you know, your first album come came out. Did it? Did the sort of the the did the did the outfit sort of bond quite, you know, quickly? Well, actually, it actually took some time, David. It, it took from it took all of nineteen eighty three. Um, so we had a year. Um, and in actual fact, we were still finishing Rattlesnakes when we were in London for the initial sessions with, with Paul Hardeman. But we had written, we wrote the core songs in 1983. Um, we wrote, uh, you know, I co-wrote I Read It Be Heartbroken and Rattlesnakes with Lloyd. We had Forest Fire, we had Perfect Skin, and we had Patience. So we had this core um, fulcrum. Um, and I think that that's what you always need. Um, so it wasn't it, it wasn't quite so meteoric, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I we find out later on quite quickly actually that that time that we'd had that you know unimpeded time that we had to write Rattlesnakes was so important. Because after the first tour for Rattlesnakes and things were beginning to break through, um, we were kind of immediately put back in a situation where Polydor wanted a follow-up because it had been more successful, I guess, than they initially anticipated. And, you know, we had to cram. It was a different experience. And, you know, we still contend to this day that it maybe wasn't quite so successful, although it did... Easy Pieces did provide, I guess, the most successful songs for like Holland Commotions. Yes, absolutely. And was that period, did you sort of sense, a bit like, you know, in the 60s, they must have got that moment where you're thinking there's a lot of interest in music happening at the moment. And did you sort of pick up on the that kind of kind of indie zeitgeist that started to happen in the 80s with, you know, people like, obviously the Smiths had happened in 83 and then you had the June Brides. And uh, the new Brian, the go-betweens, and bands like that, and you know, just like every week, you know, when you look back now at those kind of the indie charts, and you sort of look at what was kind of happening and what was coming out, and who was touring, you're thinking, you know, it seemed like a very creative time. Was that filtering back into the band and what you were doing? Um, I don't think it was filtering into the band um, in a stylistic way. I think that we we felt that we had a pretty good handle on what. We wanted to sound like, but yeah, I mean, of course, we were very aware of 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 U two and REM, uh, the Bunny Man, and uh, you know, and we loved all these artists, um, and we particularly loved Prefab Sprout, who we used to see a lot. Um, we see all the kitchenware people, yeah, but the the Prefab particularly seemed to be in the same hotel as us <laughs> in London a lot of time. I mean, I love that. I've, I still listen to Steve McQueen. I just think it's a fantastic, fantastic piece of work. Yes. My God. It was a, It was just genius. Though, strangely... Have you talked to Paddy? I haven't, actually. No, I haven't. Oh. Um, and that would be a joy. Because I always felt... I mean, to be honest, remember, this is the days of vinyl. I didn't know Side 2 as well as Side 1 of that album, which I feel a bit embarrassed to admit, especially, you know... In, 
because side one was so it had all the you know such a classic and i did go and see them live on that tour and um you know they were stunning though now i listen to it the production feels a little bit i wish the production was quite slightly different if you know what i mean some of the 80s it seemed a bit i don't know of its time really yeah i think uh, yeah i'd need to listen to it again <laughs> i may well do after this but um in what way did you feel it was different? It just feels it feels a little bit glossy, though you know that kind of because the because the eighties production sound. I don't know who was the producer. Actually, I'll have to quickly look. Um, you know, there was there was like the indie sound, which was very distinctive, like you guys and the Smiths and the June Brides and all that scene. And then you had the mainstream charts, and it was that kind of Trevor Horn production and, and, and prefab sprites seemed to. Oh, and the other band, I know one, one shouldn't ever admit this actually. <laughs> talk, talk. I often listen and think, oh my god, that production is just quite over the. It's so eighties, isn't it? If you listen, if you listen to Talk Talk, which I know everyone's, you know, it's like everyone loves Talk Talk, but you know, um, I find that quite. It seems a bit like, yeah, kind of wish because David Bowie, there was two albums he did in the 80s after Let's Dance, and they got remixed because obviously someone said, Yeah, it would be really interesting to hear them without that 80s vibe. And actually, they sound really different, some of the tracks. And it's like, Oh, yeah, this is much better if only David hadn't sort of, you know, got carried away so much during that period. But you know, it's David, yeah, Bowie, absolutely. You know. <laughs> um, uh, no, absolutely. There, there is, there is, an, you know. There was a device, there's a studio box called the Oral Exciter that was used in the 80s. They loved it, and it just put too much high, high top end on everything. Um, They thought it was a very radio-friendly device at the time, but it's looking back, if you listen to the original recordings, it was pretty detrimental. Um, When when we had a chance to remix Rattlesnakes for the the box set, it was night and day. I mean, uh, the remix that, that we were able to get done is so much better. There's no oral excitement on it. It's just fantastic. Um, so that, that's, to some extent, I think is what you're talking about. But talk, talk. Um, yeah, I mean, when you get to life's what you make it, um, I think they were getting, they were getting a little bit more experimental by that time. Um, but laughing stock and prior to that spirit of Eden, I, such immense pieces of art. Yes. In my opinion. Yes. Well, interesting enough, Steve McQueen was produced by Thomas Dolby. Uh, I, I remember that. Yeah, so, um, yes, he was the man at the moment. So did you, I mean, obviously, with a lot of bands, you know, no one, I mean, I suppose you have the ambition to you're going to go beyond you know, just played in front of your friends and family and, and anybody else you can emotionally blackmail to see. But then, you know, occasionally, you know, people hit the big time and you start to sort of get some traction. How did it feel with, with you and the band and developing as a musician and as a, a you know, you know, a creative person and, and sort of, because obviously an artist or writer is on their own, but in a band you've got that dynamic and suddenly you, you've got this kind of amazing relationship which is can be quite interesting. How How did... How did it feel, or how did it form with with the uh, Lloyd and the commotions? Um, I I enjoyed the travelling um, aspect of touring, and I, and I loved the gigs. Um, I think most people that have experienced this usually end up saying that there's so much waiting time and, and holding time. That's what you need to learn to manage. 
I mean, you get better at that as you get more experienced. But I think the first tour for Rattlesnakes, the tour was out for six weeks around the UK. And I just think that we were so high and the possibilities of success that uh, nothing else really mattered, that we, we were able to just enjoy it. As the, ne- the neophytes that we were really at the time. Yes. Later on, I think when expectations get higher and you realise you're in a business, um, it, it, it can cause some tensions. Um, and I think, you know, people have different artistic, individual artistic aspirations that sometimes maybe they feel are not being fulfilled. Um, and I think that that happens in every band. Um, it, it probably did with us laterally. Um, but... Um, no, I, I, I enjoyed touring. Yes. Well, I enjoyed the topography of it, the geography of it, the cultural aspects of it. It's, it's fantastic. It's, it's a remarkable opportunity, actually. Well, I, I would imagine. And, you know, because you were sort of, you obviously co-wrote the kind of, the, the classics that we've come to love, like Rattlesnakes and, you know, Are You Ready to Be Heartbroken? And then on the second album, you did, um, I'm just looking... <laughs> Um, the class, yes. I did tell you. Lost, lost weekend. So, did you know what was the? You know, can you remember the processes of how those came together? Well, no, I, 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 we really had. It was very rushed during Easy Pieces time. I certainly remember how Lost Weekend came together. Um, the other two co-writes in mine, which of them were pretty gone and uh, minor character. Um, I don't really remember them so much, but we all had Porter Studios. So the beginning of each recording session, like right at the inception, you would just get together with all your Porter Studio tapes in the studio and listen and go, is this good? No, it's rubbish. Chuck that out. You know, eventually it's, you hone things down. Um, but last weekend, I was playing something that sounded a bit like feeling groovy. Just a very basic chord sequence. It's a uh, uh, it's a one six four five. <laughs> it's like three majors and a minor. Um, there's so many songs written with it, and I think I was playing an arpeggio. It literally sounded like feeling groovy. And Lana said, oh, "That's really great. Um, you know what'd be really good with that? Like the rhythm from the passenger." Right. So we wrote last weekend. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Nice. Uh, you know, obviously there's tons and tons of guitar lines that I wrote afterwards. It doesn't sound very much like either of these songs, although you can definitely hear the passenger rhythm in there. Um, um, so that's that that was that was under duress, that song it had to be written quickly. And it's ironic that it's uh, that it was a hit. Yes. <laughs> very ironic. Yes. It's interesting because I did an interview with Hunt. Sales, who was the one, you know, the drummer in the band for the Passenger, and um, obviously he's fiercely proud of it, but also a bit upset that you know, he's, he doesn't have any songwriting credits or anything on it. So, you know, it leaves a sort of bitter taste in people's mouths, doesn't it, for the band who kind of added the iconic bits in it? But um, well, it, it can do, and I think quite quite justifiably a lot of times, you know. But um, yeah, yeah. Because yep. um, because then you because you then work with the super producers who I remember um, Elvis Costello had worked with them on Let Them Talk, Clive Langer, and, 
And what were they like to work with? Because I did an interview once with, I think his name's Mark Saunders, who was a young chap who was who went on to be a producer. And he'd sort of worked with, uh, I think it was Clive, but it could have been Alan, when they he, they were doing that single with David Bowie and Mick Jagger, uh, Dancing in the Streets. And he had quite a funny story about the fact that there was a lot... They, they they drunk a lot and he he was having to sort of keep it together a bit. <laughs> I I don't remember any of that at all. But then again, we drank a lot at the time as well. So we <laughs> matched each other. Now Clive and Alan were great, and I remember Mark, by the way, very well. Also, uh, I think Stephen Stephen Irvin, the the, the our, um, commercial drummer, still keeps up with Mark. Actually, uh, he saw him quite recently. But yeah, I remember that, and um, they, they they were great. Um, they're very different. Alan engineers and Clive was the the more creative, more aesthetically conceptually based person. Yeah. Um, we we had fun making it, um, and it uh, it was it was just good fun being with them, hanging out with them, and going through the process. I just think we we were beginning to realise that. Um, the success that we had with Raffle Snakes was maybe based on the strength of the songs and the time that we'd had to write them and rewrite them, which you have to do. And in this instance, we hadn't had that opportunity. Yes. So we're a bit concerned about where it was all going, I think, as a consequence. Yes. Were you kind of, um, I mean, sort of looking back on it, which is always a bit different to being what it's like being there, but but are you sort of amazed with certain people, you know, like the Smiths during that five-year period, you know, with you know releasing a, you know, nearly an album a year, if not a bit more, and then you know people like David Bowie in the seventies was, you know, releasing a, an album a year for the whole ten years, and then he also produced Lou Reed and Iggy Pop and did various tours and then yeah. relocated. So, did you, I mean, as an artist, do you think how the hell did they do it in the Rolling Stones in the late sixties and early seventies when they had Mick Taylor on guitar? I mean, you know, having the experience yourself of being, in, you know, in the band doing that creative moment, are you sort of boggled with with how some people keep it together? Um, no, not really, because I think every band has a set has a different dynamic. And for us, um, Lloyd was a fulcrum. He writes the lyrics. He was the conceptualist. Um, and one had to wait, really. And we, neither of us, none of us really, neither Lloyd Blair or Lawrence or I, um, really wrote that well on the road. So we just needed, a, you know, we needed, we needed recovery time. I think for the Smiths it's different or was different because um, you know Johnny was was the composer, um, so the only I think really it was possibly um, a more straightforward um, situation for them writing wise. Yes. Yeah. So when you went to record Mainstream, which was in eighty seven, which I've almost put down as the best year of music ever. <laughs> It's, it's just a, yeah, I just look at, you know, 87 and think always think, you know, the amount of releases that came out in that year were amazing. Um, what was it like? You know, what was the kind of vibe like of the band at that stage? Um, 87, we are on hiatus then, I think. We were beginning to record mainstream at the end of it. Uh, we were exhausted. 
that's what I remember. Uh, we'd all, most of us had moved to London. So there were quite quite big social changes individually and collectively for us. Lloyd was in, was in London. We're all, we were all actually within two or three miles of each other. He was in the Highbury. Stephen and I were in Finsbury Park. But I think Lawrence actually was in Brixton or Stockholm. But we were all there. Um, and I, I think we were... We were adapting to life in London um, and adapting to the fact that we were, I suppose, quite successful. And it was, it was a strange time. It was really good, actually, in a lot of ways. Um, but, um, yeah, it was strange. We did have quite a lot of time there to write, um, and Lloyd came with a lot of pieces. So um, I think it was. It ended up being largely in the end. The process was a little bit more like rattlesnakes. We we felt like we had a little bit of time. I can't remember if we insisted on having more time off because we felt like we'd learned a lesson of easy pieces. Um, but it was quite similar to rattlesnakes. We came together with the bits and pieces. Um, Lloyd had written these days. I remember on his prophet synth. Um, I came up with the bits and pieces for Jennifer. So in, in many ways, it was quite similar. Yes. Jennifer said, that's a classic intro, isn't it? That's, a, you know, the, the first bit. Did that, yeah. um, did that come together quite straightforward? Because that's, that's always been one of those very confident sort of introductions. Um. Yeah, I, I wrote that on my Porter studio. I can't remember <laughs> exactly when. I was in Glasgow. Um, so <clears throat> I don't know whether it was, excuse me, <clears throat> possibly written <clears throat> in my parents' house, Nisco Bride. Um, it wasn't in London. Um, yeah, I, I came up with a riff. Um, do you want me to play it for you? <laughs> <laughs> the guitar here. Um, yeah, I came up with the riff, and um, we, I mean, we, the, that, that, the riff is basically an arpeggio across chords. The chords were all there, um, and um, it, it just developed from that point. Things begin to present themselves. Yes. Compositionally, it's... when you have a, a full section, um, it, Usually, if, if you usually begin to hear on your head where it needs to go, um, I always think when you're writing guitar parts or writing any musical parts, you have to you have to really know the piece. Um, so if you're beginning to write it, you, you kind of try and let it percolate and let it tell you where it wants to go. Um, and by that I mean when you've got one section running through your head ad infinitum and it's like an earworm. Um, the rest usually begin to present themselves. If you just like, just try and be quiet inside yourself and just let it come. Usually, that's what happens. And I think that that's what happened with with Jennifer. Yes, it's still it's still one of the classic songs, isn't it? Let's face it. Still, it's still magic. It's still magic. So then, after that, did you do a tour, or was it just a case of waiting? Uh, well, we we did do a very, very long tour on the back of mainstream. Um, and I think it's fairly well documented what happened there. I think Lloyd was being, was 
a little bit unhappy creatively and he felt that the band was running its course and he just wanted to, I think actually at the time he wanted to take a hiatus and and go away on his own for a couple of years. And for some reason, I can't really remember, that didn't seem like it was going to pan out. So um, in the end, we had to do this tour uh, in more or less full knowledge of the fact that, that at the end of the tour, the band would would be no more. Um, so that, that was a little bit difficult to begin with. But one, once we got into the swing of it, it, it was fine. It was a long haul. I do remember that. Um, and um, Blair <clears throat> left the band. Uh, he did the album and then he didn't want to tour. <clears throat> so that was a bit of a blow. And we got a keyboard player in for that. And <clears throat> I think Lloyd hadn't played much of the guitar on mainstream. I'd layered so many guitars that we needed a second guitar player because he wanted to be more of a front person. Um, so we got Dave Cummings in. Um, who had been Higgins and was a friend of Mark Bedford's. Dave is a friend to this day, um, but um, that, that was a really good touring band. I think that we sounded really good. Yes. So actually, you didn't have a. It wasn't quite the Ziggy Stardust moment at the end. You knew it was going to sort of get to the end, you know, to the last date, and then you're going to say that's it, the end. Uh, we we didn't know that at the outset. Um, um, uh, I, I I think I was I was okay with it. Um, and I understood that, that he wanted to just try something else creatively. And I think I was feeling maybe that we needed a break um, for sure. Um, the, a hiatus would be a good idea. And as it turned out, that wasn't actually what happened. But um, no, I, I, I think I was cool with it. Yes. So then what happens next with with your sort of next journey? Because obviously you sort of, you team up with, with members of um, Friends Again. Um, yes, that was, this is where Bloomsday comes in and that's getting back to the initial conversation. Yeah, that's when we, uh, we asked Chris if he would like to do this and he said yes and we made an album. And there you go. So, so sort of just briefly then, because obviously, you know, you, you sort of stayed with the whole sort of, as a sort of career, music and creativity. So then how do you sort of navigate that next period when you've had sort of probably nearly 10 years of sort of being focused on one band? How do you, how do you then sort of cope with the next phase and, and stage of your life? It's ironic. It ended up being quite seamless, really. Um, when Bloomsday ended, um, I think I had a couple of weeks. And I guess Derek, uh, Derek McKillop, the commissions manager, had heard that, that we'd finished. And I, I bumped into him on an ATM in Finsbury Park and he said, Lloyd's uh, just made this second solo album and uh, Bob Quine doesn't want to tour. So would you be interested? I said, yeah, I, I would. Um, he said, okay, I'll get Lloyd to call you, and Lloyd called me up from New York, and that was it. So it was literally only a matter of weeks. And then that would probably have been, well, January 91, I think, January 91. Um, and within within a few weeks, we were, uh, he was in London, and we did a bit of rehearsal, and I had to learn all these songs, and... We started touring on that um, at the end of March, so there was virtually no time off. Yes. 
Did, did you um I mean was it the case that the dynamic did did the dynamic suit, you know, the the um, you know, with the relationship with Lloyd, did was it just a lot easier with him being a solo artist and not being in part of a band with other members just knowing where they stood in the scheme of things? Um, no, I, I don't think so. Um because there's always there's always a, a dynamic in any situation. Um, um, there have been in the commotions, and there is with every touring band. Um, so I, I wouldn't say so, but yeah, it was undoubtedly probably easy for us to to pick up where we'd left off. And um, you know, we've both gone away and done things, and uh, it, it just seemed like a good time. It was really an education to learn. Bob Quine's guitar parts, that, that was just fantastic, you know. Yes, absolutely. And then, I mean, but you also, you you play on various solo albums, don't you, as well, during the 90s? Yeah, I, I did. So we did the tour for uh, Don't Get Weird On Me, Babe, and um, that ended um, at the end of 91. Um, it was really, it was, a, it was a long tour, it was cool. We had... Uh, Grant and Robert from the Go-Betweens, Robert Foster and Grant McLaren from the Go-Betweens were on the bus with as they opened. That was cool. And we had Bobby Vickers, who was the bass player on the Go-Betweens, was actually the bass player on our band. Um, so there was a little bit of a hiatus after that. Uh, I went back to London. Um, and in 92, we began to, we began to send me bits and pieces for the album that was to become Bad Vibes, and that was the first one that we did together. Um, and I think, yeah, I was still in London at this time, so I, I flew through to New York to do the recording sessions. Yes. For Bad Vibes at the end of December, November, December, 92. And that, that was the first solo album of, of Lloyd's that I actually played on. Um, and I played on most of the rest of them up until antidepressant for about ten years. Yeah. Yeah. And was it and was it quite an education? Because obviously you're sort of playing, you know, with various different members, but also different producers. Like, you know, you'd worked with Stephen Street, who'd had his kind of big moments. Well, he was still having his big moments in the nineties, but obviously it started yeah. with the Smiths and Morrissey. So, did were you kind of aware of those kind of? Um, connections with different people and, and what you sort of meant within the musical kind of um, life, I suppose, of, you know, of, of what the Smiths had meant, what Lloyd, the, the work you did with Lloyd Cole and the commotions meant in the 80s. And then you sort of work with different people who, who sort of go on to work with other people. I suppose it's like I'm trying to sort of talk about the sort of, I don't know about the holistic, but all the connections that kind of get made. I just wondered how that starts to influence you as a, you know, a creative person. Um, you mean meeting other yeah. people? Like, um, I think it can, it can often be quite peripheral. I mean, I do remember meeting Steve because Stephen... Street uh, did some of the production on Love Story, so we have that's jumping forward on the album. Um, and Chris Hughes was involved in that, and we had met Chris previously the first for the you know the first time uh, during the mainstream sessions. Um, and he came, so it's Chris came back um, to actually 
he was the executive producer in the, in the original sessions, the initial sessions for Love Story, which we did in, in New York. Um, we put kind of put a session band together, and it was a great band. Sarah Lee played bass, and we rehearsed for about a week. But I think we felt, and Chris, who had really the executive say so, felt songs weren't quite ready at that point. Um, so that. He, he ended up getting, a, I remember he, he got a monumental flu in New York. He was really sick and he had to fly home. Um, uh, and these things just coincided with, they just felt, wow, I don't think it's quite ready either. So I'm going to go. And he's, I think he said to Lloyd, let's just regroup and see where this goes. So when the session started again, I think uh, Stephen was on board. And um, yeah, it's interesting. Yes, absolutely. I, I get more, more. Chris is fantastic. He's unbelievably creative, erudite artist who happens to be a producer. Um, that's how I would describe you know, yeah. his situation. He's incredible. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think yeah, I, yeah. And when and I and and. Fantastic, yeah. Um, and uh, as the 90s progressed, obviously, you sort of realise what happened to Anna McGee and Creation Records and the sort of the the sort of the rise of Britpop. Did um did you did you sort of bump into Anna again during that period, or did you sort of were you aware that Britpop was so much about the sort of the people who probably went to see you in the 80s? This was the the, the so-called children who sort of taken the baton and had suddenly yeah. found themselves hitting the mainstream in the charts and on top of the pops. Well, I was really aware of that. I was living in Toronto by that time. I moved to Toronto in 93. So, yeah, I, 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 was, I read the papers, I listened to the music. I was fully aware of that. Um, I remember going down to New York to Lloyd's apartment and he played me Modern Life is Rubbish and we were like, oh, this is fantastic, you know. Um, so, um, yeah, I was very aware of all that. I didn't see Alan um, for decades, actually. Um, I think I had bumped into him a couple of times outside Polydor at the very, very early days of creation and we, you know, have a chat a bit of a catch-up, but I didn't really, I, I had no contact with him, and I, I don't really, to be honest, um, but I did see him probably 15 years ago, that's the last time I've seen him, so we, we haven't really kept up, but I was obviously completely aware of what was going on, and his successes with Creation and, and, and Bobby Gillespie, who I, of course, remember from that time, and Andy, you know? Yes, absolutely. That must have felt amazing that you'd all sort of grown up together in the same sort of neighbourhood? Um, yeah, it, it, it was, it was, it was a bit, it felt a little bit ironic. It, it was, I think when you're living through it, you don't really, you don't view it from that perspective, I don't think at all. Um, I mean, Aztec Camera were from East Kilbride, um, and they were playing the same sort of places as Newspeak. It was a place in the south of Glasgow called the Doon Castle that I played with Alan and Andy and, and Aztec Camera were there. But uh, I didn't really know Roddy at that time. I don't, actually. Um, I've met him a couple of times. Uh, Jesus and Mary Chain, that was obviously through Alan McGee Connection um, and Creation. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's, it was strange because if, I don't know if you know East Bride, but 
He's compared to like the Milton Keynes of Scotland, so it seems it's a slightly incongruous place. But yeah, we, 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 I don't, I can't speak for them, but I just wanted to leave. You know? <laughs> At the time, I appreciate it now. It was a great place actually for kids to grow up. But when I, uh, you know, when I went to art school, I was very happy to go. Yes, absolutely. And then you, you know, relocating to Toronto. What was the kind of reason for that kind of massive move in life? Well, I, I met uh, a woman um, at the end of that 1991 tour, and we got on really well, and um, she tried to come out to London for a while, couldn't get a work permit, so I've been to Toronto a couple of times on tour, and it was one of the North American cities that I'd always thought, you know, it could be, could be really interesting to live in, um, so when the opportunity came up, it, it seemed like something worth, worth trying, you know? Yes, absolutely. It's it's you know it's good, and you obviously you know it's you know music's always been you know the sort of thing, and you're still doing it. So, you've done two solo albums, Sundogs and Second Story as well. So, um, you know what was it like putting you know those together and sort of releasing them? Sundogs, particularly, um, that yeah. That that was a labor of love for me, um, and I don't I, I didn't think anybody would like it. <laughs> and actually, to this day, I, I I didn't do a lot of work around about that. It's true, but I do still stand by that 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 work. Um, I'm happy with it. it. It's instrumental music, which is such a it's such a a, a truism. <laughs> All music, you know. This is different. Um, it's different from song-based work, and actually the arrangements have to be different because you can't use uh, verse, pre-chorus, chorus structures in instrumental music very effectively because somebody, you know, the listener always knows what's coming next. AABE format was much, 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 much better <laughs> instrumentally, and it, it just tied into my jazz background, I guess. Uh, I use that word advisedly. Um, because my period of jazz started, the period that I still love starts in the 60s or starts in the very early 60s, late 50s, with Miles uh, kind of blue. Uh, but the period I absolutely love is that late 60s, um, um, in a silent way, Jack Johnson, I don't know if you know this. Yes, I do. Um, I, I mean, I just, I love them. So that's, I wanted to get into this. I wanted to just try something. And it was a liberation for me, really, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, um, and then obviously you're still sort of working and touring with Lloyd as well, which must be quite um, enjoyable. What's what's it been like the last year in lockdown, lockdown world, really? Um, yeah, it's it's been strange i don't know what it's been like for you um yeah i what can we say about this it's just so so peculiar it's uh something that nobody's lived through before and we're all having to live through um we were i don't we were on tour so um and we had a lot of dates booked that's lloyd and i uh, you know that the, we you, do you know the guest work album the the we produced last a couple of years ago. Yes. Yeah, I, I mean, I 
I love guesswork. I stand by it. I think it's a fantastic piece of work. And I think, you know, it's indicative of Lloyd's strength. He just keeps on wanting to move forward. Um, so we had a, we were having a great time on tour, um, and uh, we had to shut it all down, as have all artists. It's uh, It's been brutal, actually. Yeah. But, um, you, you know, you make do with it. And um, in some ways, for me, things haven't changed that much. I mean, what I do when I'm at home is, is write, record, um, and that hasn't changed. So we're trying to work on a follow-up to guesswork. And I have a, I have a project that, I, that I'm really happy with, with, with my partner, Teresa, um, who's a singer and songwriter, um, that we're just finishing off just now. So I guess it gave us an opportunity to finish this. Um, so Yeah. I'm I've, been, I've, been, I've been quite busy, but yes, financially for all of us, it's been brutal. Yes, well, I sort of having spoke to quite a few people recently about, um, you know, what what what's been happening. I think most people have really struggled. You know, I mean, I know, I remember just as lockdown happened, Hank Wangford, who I was interviewing, was just like he just got the work together, released it, and then it's like this happened, and he was just feeling like just so deflated. And quite a lot of people, I think it was about the timing. I think anybody who had planned last year to sort of put the album out, do a tour of some description, and then not being able to do any of it, just has have left them completely, you know, you know, winded really. And um, I don't know, yeah. it's, a, it's a difficult one, because I think the enthusiasm, it's the, the kind of dream that everyone has, you know, oh, it'd be great to have some more time just to sort of, you know, not be so rushed. And then it's like, oh, actually, I didn't really want it to be quite like this. You know, it wasn't what, what anybody really needed. So I think it's been, um, I, I don't know, it's discombobulated everyone, hasn't it? I think it has discombobulated everyone. Um, but, you know, David, I think it's been, it's necessary. And, um, um, you know, what, what can you say? I mean, healthcare workers the world over, they've had a terrible time. Uh, I've had many other people. So I don't think that artists and musicians have had, had it the worst by any stretch. No, this is true. This is I really true. don't. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm itching to get back to work and, and get, get playing again. Um, and hopefully we will, fingers crossed, hopefully we will be able to do that next year. Yes. So is it 2020? It's looking, it's looking promising now. Uh, I, I get a vaccination next week. Um, way ahead of schedule in Canada because um, they imported a surplus of AstraZeneca. And... Um, um, it's not. It's contraindicated for anybody over sixty-five. So I'm in this sixty to sixty-five group, and uh, they they just want to use them before they expire. So I'll get one job, hopefully <laughs> next week. Yeah, uh, but you know, yeah, it's a bit spinnaker. So it's awful for a lot of people, and I really don't think that we do have it the worst because you know we can still work and and create, and that's that's a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. There is there, hopefully there's a future. So look, last lastly, I mean, if you could say, you could have said something to a eighteen year old self starting out, and or just some wisdom or or something that you think, God, yeah, that would that's something that I've learned over the years. What what would you say? Um, about the creative process perhaps? well i suppose whether it's creative or just kind of the the kind of the journey of being in a band or being a musician that you obviously have learned over the, the 
decades that you would have thought, God, I wish someone had just whispered that in my ear when I was younger. And it could still be useful to somebody now who was starting out. But, you know, it would have been, you know, I mean, it's... You know, it's just a bit of a sort of, um, a, a sort of, uh, you know, it's just always interesting what people often say, what they've learned, I suppose. They're sort of the key bullet points. It could be one, it could be a few where people say, yes, I would say, don't do this or do that or something like that. I just wondered what you would 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 say. Well, I don't have any tips about conducting yourself in a band or you know life we all have to just lead our lives but creatively I would say playing in a band is about serving the song first and foremost you know never losing sight of the bigger picture and not letting your ego dictate the parts that you write which is easier said than done sometimes um for that you, you really need to know the song inside out I mean, I think that that's the same regardless of whatever genre genre you're working in. I mean, Bill Pizzell, the, my favourite musician, says the same thing. When he goes on tour, he's learning a, a new repertoire. It's just like, you just have to sit down and really learn the stuff. And when you really learn the stuff and you get inside the harmony or get inside the concept, things begin to happen, you know? Yeah. But it's always about serving the piece, it's always about serving the song or the, the, the music or the art in whatever way, you know. And you have to be you have to be mindful and you have to be alert and you just kind of like it's as more yeah. so, don't worry, you know. But it is about commitment and you have to work hard. I know that I did an interview with a guitarist called Peter Bonas, who was in the Hundred Men, who's who was kind of Pete Murphy's band, and I think they yeah. did they did two albums they loved, and then they did a third one, which wasn't a great experience. They didn't get on well with the producer, and but they did the tour, you know, and it, you know, and they said by the end of the tour, they they'd worked the songs that they put the you know the which had been on that third album and they were really you know he thought they were just much better at the end of the tour than what they were in the studio and if they could have recorded them again he would have thought the results would have been better so do you ever sort of feel that with songs that you've sort of you've worked and recorded in the studio but then after playing live a few times singing that um, would... no because I think a recording is an idealized version of that song in that moment in time um, and I'm, you know, the song exists as as a piece of music, as a kind of intellectual entity that you can write down. If you can write, if you can write music, you can actually write it down. Um, and given that that's the case, I think once you've made the recording, you just let that go because that's 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 it. You know, it's like that little snippet in time. But the song remains, or the, the work remains, and it, it can always be redone. If you want to do that, I mean, there's so many ways you can do a song. For instance, we've done so many acoustic shows, Lloyd and I, together. Uh, and, you know, there's been a few head scratchers who will go, well, how, how are we going to do that between the two of us? Uh, particularly on the last tour when we were trying to figure out how to do guestwork songs, which are very, very dense and, uh, and in some cases very synth-orientated. But... The chords are beautiful, the harmony is beautiful, the words are fantastic, the story is there. Um, so you just find, you know, you go back to the charts or you go back to the, the essence of the song and you take it from there. Yes. Every song that's good can have that done with it. Yeah. 
Because it's interesting, because I saw, I think Lloyd, a few years ago, he was at Epic in Norwich, and I think he was just on his own. But he was, um, he did some quite interesting chat and banter between songs. I remember him sort of, sort of singing some of his earlier songs from the 80s and sort of having to kind of own up that he's a bit embarrassing about what you sort of wrote and sung about in the 80s when you were young and then trying to rec- do them live decades later when you're, you know, older men, really. Do you do you ever sort of find yourself cringing at some of those sort of lyrics that were written? Because obviously with guesswork that was written two years ago, which obviously yeah. going to be a bit different to what you wrote in the 80s. Do you often yeah. sort of slightly sort of cringe at some of it? Um, no, I, I don't. Um, I don't because I see them as... Um, as you know, temporally as as a as a piece of work that's in that time. So, if he feels that he still wants to sing them, um, there's always something musically for me in, in that situation. So, I, I never really think that. I really leave that up to Lloyd. Um, um, so. Yeah, that, that that that's a question you need to ask. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. Plus, you know, people want people pay money for tickets. They want to hear songs. Uh, I've seen a few comments um, from uh, from folk um, to the effect that you know, when you guys come out again, we expect you to play the hits. <laughs> and I, I totally understand where that's coming from, particularly after what we've we've all been through. <laughs> you know, maybe there's maybe there's a maybe nostalgia is able to transcend itself or will be able to transcend itself. I think so. And, you know, it becomes a celebration. No, yep. it's cool. It's, it's cool. cool. It'll yeah. be fine. That's brilliant. Okay. Well, look, this has been great. Thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this, Neil. This has been great and um, really appreciate it. And uh, it's all worked brilliantly. So, look, when I put it out, I can always send you the link and you can always, if you want, you know, post it wherever and that would be great. Oh, I'd I'd love thank I'd love to do that, David. Please do. And, I will. Thanks for for asking me to do this. And thank, you know, it's it's been really interesting talking to you. Great. Oh, thank you. Okay. Well, look. Have a lovely day. It's a bit later here. Yeah, you too. Okay. Take care there, Neil, and um, hopefully catch you sometime in Norwich. Absolutely. See you later. Bye bye. 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 And that. If you don't realise, it's the end of the interview. A massive thank you to Neil Clark for giving me that uh, the time for that. And um, I always love leaving the end in soon because it always sounds so sort of, um, I don't know, I'm terribly English, aren't I? I just buff all the way. Anyway, look, this has been the C86 show. I'm David Eastor. Thank you ever so much for listening, if you still are. Um, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do the C86 show. These have all been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. And um, that's it. But again, massive thanks to Neil. And um, anyway, tune in again. There'll be more. Stay safe.